You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the Ringer Podcast Network. Looking for a better way to bet on your favorite sports online? With FanDuel Sportsbook, there are more ways to bet. If you can dream it, you can probably bet it through FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel offers spreads, parlays, money lines, over-under props, and in-game bets all in an easy-to-use app. And there are more ways to cash out. When you win, you can receive your winnings in your bank account in as little as 48 hours through a safe and secure process. So check out FanDuel Sportsbook app today to experience sports betting the way it always should have been. FanDuel, more ways to win. 21 and over and present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Joining me as always today are Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Howdy. And Ringer staff writer Ben Mr. Chalk Lindbergh. Say hello, Ben. Hello, guys. We've got a pretty interesting, well, you know, we'll let you decide if it's interesting or not. We had fun with it, uh, this segment that's going to come up in a minute, but we had a, a really special achievement Uh, in baseball last night that I think it's worth bantering about for a minute or two. Uh, John Birdie of the Miami Marlins (laughs) did what I did every time I played any kind of computerized or video game console-based baseball video game. He walked, he stole second, he stole third, he stole home, and not only did he steal home, he tripped over his own feet, fell down, and bear-crawled all the way to the plate and was still safe. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And to add insult to injury, that came against the Mets, who did not score at all in either game of that doubleheader. I think it was the first time they had been shut out in both ends of a doubleheader since 1975. Granted, yeah, that's a little they were harsh, maybe rusty. They, they were well, off they for had, a while. They, they were off for a while, and they also had four fewer innings in which to score. So It's let's... true. But their offensive futility, I think, just made it even more entertaining to me that Birdie scored a run in that way against them. I Guys, like what the, the fuck? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought that was a pretty, I mean, he didn't do it intentionally, but it worked as an act of deception. I think the pitcher was trying to throw the ball home and got confused when he saw Birdie trip over his own feet halfway down the line and kind of muffed the throw. And then the catcher didn't catch it cleanly while he was trying to figure out what was going on. So I think, you know, it's kind of like the the youth basketball play where you have one guy just collapse onto the court and the defense gets distracted so someone else can get a layup, and I approve. 
Yeah, usually the steal of home is like a stunning display of athletic prowess and grace and agility and you don't beautiful think this slide. Was? <laughs> I, I don't think- know if it quite qualified. It was exciting. I'll take any steal of home. I'm all for steals of home, but <laughs> this is not what I usually expect to see. Uh, I think that yeah, maybe this is like watching a lot of hockey, but the guy falling down, getting back up and doing what he intended to do anyways, that's a, you know, that's not an insignificant genre of sport highlight. You know, I think John <laughs> like Birdie is not falling down is more athletic than falling. Yeah, fair down. Enough. <laughs> uh, John Birdie's a good athlete though. I would say he's one of those players who m- might, might be a better athlete than a ball player, but uh, yeah, I definitely appreciate any kind of any, uh, feet of base running aggressiveness, certainly to this level. And the the bear crawl, the involvement of the Mets, all of that just makes it my kind of highlight. Of course, the reason that I started with that is because there was another achievement last night. First no-hitter of the season by, I would have to say, ringer favorite Lucas Giolito. It was a dominant performance. He walked one batter, and I guess the, the last at-bat of the game uh, was a line drive that almost fell. Uh, but Basically, he was in command all night and didn't really have, you know, that one amazing web gem that's going to be played over and over like we've seen with some past no hitters with some past White Sox perfect games. Thinking of the Dwayne Wise catch with Mark Beerley's uh, years ago. So I think Giolito had a bad first start to the season, but he's been great the rest of the campaign and is a pretty dangerous team. The White Sox, now that they're hitting four home runs a game, they don't need to get no hit from their pitchers, but that certainly helps. Yeah, he looked really great. He got 30 whiffs, I believe, which was, I think, the second most in a no-hitter since uh, 1990. Nolan Ryan had 31 in his last no-hitter, which is pretty impressive. In which he probably threw like 193 (laughs) pitches. Yeah, and a lot of people pointed out that the opposition here was not the strongest, and this was kind of a truly terrible Pirates lineup that I think had a 229 batting average coming into the game. There were a lot of guys who had seasonal averages under 200 in that lineup, but Giolito is obviously really good, so it's not as if he could only do this against a a poor lineup. It's just that when you're talking about the difference between zero hits being historic and one hit just being a ho-hum great start, obviously that helps, but he's really good. He's he's good enough. Could you hear me rolling my eyes at that? (laughs) He has no hit stuff, as they say, against any lineup on any given day. Yeah, I'm I'm not that sympathetic to the oh it's a bad lineup so it doesn't count argument. This is still a major league lineup. Even oh, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah, yeah it, it it counts. You know, I there's a, a story of mine going up tomorrow in fact that uh in which I reference the best pitch game I've ever seen uh and the victims in in that game are the 2013 Astros. So clearly I don't believe that <laughs> the uh the point is this is still a major league lineup. It still counts. You still there's still that little room for error, and as I think the the last out of the game illustrated, because that was absolutely tagged right off the bat. I thought that that was going to uh, fall until the camera turned around and saw Angle standing right there. So, congratulations to Lucas Giolito, who was uh, in the later innings pacing around the dugout uh, like a kid who had to pee with so much nervous en- energy. I'm really glad that for everybody involved that that they got that done. All right, so that brings us to. Well, we'll see if Lucas Giolito shows up in this next segment. Uh, This was Zach's idea to do midseason awards. So all three of us put in mock ballots, three players, so not as expansive as a normal MVP or Cy Young ballot would be. Uh, Zach did all the math because he's the only one we trust to do all the math. And and so here are 
midseason awards. I just want to say, first of all, I can't believe the season's like far enough into it that we're doing these. But <laughs> yeah, we're at what forty eight percent, I think, of scheduled games, and not every game will be played, presumably. So we really are just right at the halfway mark right now. Yeah, and it's it, pretty incredible. Le- it leads to some strange considerations. Like I'm not sure how you approached your ballots, but for something like the MVP races, I didn't really look at war like I would at the end of a normal season because I just don't trust defensive data within a month. So I think it's hard to it's hard to know, first of all, how to distinguish between players where at the top of the league, it's like one guy has 1.9 war and one guy has 1.7 war. And that's not much of a difference anyway, but especially when you take into account all the small sample, the, the small sample issues with the data we have so far, it, I think it made for a more difficult selection process than I typically have at the end of a season. Just got to go with your gut, the eye test. I mean, for that, that's just one of many reasons why this was such a weird exercise. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, Lou Bob had some ridiculous defensive war over 28 games or however much he played. Uh, And uh, the other thing is, Obviously, not all these players have played the same number of games. So, uh, Paul Goldschmidt's up there in a lot of the uh, the rate hitting categories, but he's only you know, the Cardinals have only played like eleven or twelve games or however many they have. So it's it's hard to judge that against uh, a player who's played twenty eight or thirty, or somebody like Bryce Harper who's missed a few games uh, but is still up there in, in some of these hitting categories. So let's just start with NL MVP, and I'm just gonna go around the horn. Tati's first, Tati's first, Tati's first. Yes. No. No. Okay. (laughs) I went with Mookie Betts first. And uh, again, it's the difference is so small. Zach, you wrote about how war was just not going to be helpful for awards and distinguishing between players before the season started. And I think the difference between Betts and Tati's something like 0.2 wins (laughs) roughly. But Betts was my preseason pick, so maybe I'm biased toward having that be proved correct. But also, he's just been really excellent, and you know he's uh, he's got 11 homers, he's got the speed, he has his usual defense, and yeah, we may not trust defensive stats in small samples, but we know what Mookie Betts is as a defender, and as far as I've seen, he has continued to be that, so I trust that evaluation, and Really, they're roughly interchangeable, and at least I I made it not unanimous, so we have a second name to talk about. But Tatis was second on my list. Yeah, so if you look at the consensus or the collection of our votes, the three of us and wonderful producer Bobby, we have Tatis first place, Bet second place, Bryce Harper third, and others receiving votes were Yastrzemski from the Giants and Soto from the Nationals. Uh, And this is a great example, Mike, of what you were talking about, because I think uh, on a per plate appearance basis, Soto has been the best player in the National League so far. He has by far the best rate line. Uh, I think he just hasn't played enough. So I put him third on my list and I could easily see him ascending to first by the end of the year. But he's had basically half as many at bats as players like Betts and Tatis. So I think you guys didn't even put him on your ballot. And that was exactly the reason why. And it wouldn't, if, like, exactly like you said, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he comes comes through in the second half and wins this thing and comes out to be the clear MVP. Just it, when I I am sort of a, I'm not married to the the sort the war style uh, MVP voting, but I think that's that's where you've got to start. Particularly, if there's a consensus between 
uh, all the different uh, sites, but you've got to have a good reason to override it. But if there's a, a bunch of guys who are in the same sort of statistical, um, in the same sort of statistical neighborhood, then I really think the MVP ought to go narrative ought to count a lot if the if the numbers are pretty close. And I think the numbers are if they don't favor Tatis outright, they're close uh, for Betts or Harper or Soto or whoever. And if you want to, this is the reason that that I thought Trout was better than Josh Donaldson in 2015, but I, it didn't bug me that Donaldson won MVP. That's why I thought Jose Altuve was a clear MVP in 2017, even though the numbers showed him and Aaron Judge being pretty close. If you want to pick a player of the season so far in terms of performance and excitement and driving the narrative and and contribution to a winning team, if you put this to an actual BBWA panel, I would imagine this would come in 27 votes or higher out of 30 for Tatis. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, certainly just uh, the narrative favors him, I think. And the fact that he is the the face of tearing down the unwritten rules doesn't hurt either. I think what's so impressive about his season, and like a lot of people, I think I expected him to regress maybe slightly from his stats in the partial season last year, just because he had that BABIP that was over 400. And yes, he was great, but I wondered whether he set expectations so high that even someone as talented as he is couldn't match them in his sophomore season. Instead, he has been better in basically every respect. And obviously the power has been impressive. The plate discipline has been impressive. He's cut down on his chase rate a lot, but I think maybe one of the unsung aspects of his season that might be the most impressive to me is that he has yet to commit an error on defense. And we don't talk about errors a whole lot just because fielding percentage isn't always the best way to evaluate a fielder, but he made a lot of errors last season and that was a problem. And it wasn't because he didn't have the range or just didn't have the raw tools to play shortstop, but he was kind of prone to throwing balls away and to flubbing balls here and there that he could have made the play on. He made 18 errors in about 730 innings. This year, he's played about 250 defensive innings, and he is perfect, or at least official scorers have said that he is perfect. He has not committed an error yet, and that's really impressive because obviously he had the the tools, the skills to play short, but the fact that he's not messing up the routine plays at all right now while still making some really spectacular plays, he's just kind of the, the total all-run package now. And not even that, it's, you look at the kind of player he is and you just think aggressive. The way I described it a couple of weeks ago is he's sort of feeling around for the boundaries of what you can actually do instead of playing the game the way, the way standard tactics, you know, the way the limitations of normal people uh, have to play under. And in that respect, I think he's, he's very different from players like Betts or Trout, who he would otherwise be compared to in terms of the combination of, of polish and athleticism, but it, not only has he not committed an error, he hasn't been caught stealing yet. And you think about all the ridiculous chances he takes, the range he has, the throws that he's empowered to make by his incredible throwing arm. It's pretty incredible that you could argue that he's not taking enough risks at this point. He doesn't need a super high BABIP if he's going to lead the National League in home runs. Just want to point that out. Yeah, that too. Uh, so one, the last thing that I wanted to put in there, I put Mike Yastrzemski third on my, my ballot. Sometimes I, I like to, sometimes I like to do this in my midseason awards column, just to throw a bone to somebody who I am pretty sure is not going to be there by the end. Um, so I expect Soto or Betts, uh, to, to overhaul or Goldschmidt or some, some more familiar name to overhaul Mike Yastrzemski, but I thought it was worth shouting him out for the pretty incredible first half he's had. 
Yeah, I thought so too. I mean, he's sort of revamped his approach to a certain extent. He's gone with a, a more power-oriented approach intentionally, but also has been very disciplined as a hitter. And the Giants actually are coming off a, a really great week, which maybe we'll talk about later in this episode. And he's a big part of that. So yeah, Mike Yastrzemski with a, a 410 on base percentage. Speaking of players we thought maybe would regress a little bit after last season, when you come up and you're a rookie at his age, you don't really expect there to be a, a higher gear, but he has definitely found it. So like you, not sure that his numbers will look like they look right now at the end of well, the season. We've been wrong about this before, so yeah, who knows? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who would have thought if we were talking about a uh, former Vanderbilt outfielder who was drafted by the Giants and had a maybe unsustainably good rookie year last year, we'd be talking about Yastrzemski and not Brian Reynolds. Uh, anyway, let's move on to AL MVP. I think this is where... I don't know if this is contentious or Ben's just being a dick. Uh, so, Zach, why don't you read out the results here? Yeah, so in first place, uh, as a group, we have Shane Bieber. In second place, Nelson Cruz. And in third place, we have a tie between Anthony Rendon and Brandon Lau. Others receiving votes are Matt Chapman, Jose Abreu, David Fletcher. But the very notable thing here is that Bobby, Mike, and I all put Shane Bieber first. And he did not appear on Ben's ballot at all. So Ben, explain yourself. <laughs> this is not really a slight against Bieber, as you will see when we discuss my AL Cy Young ballot. It's more just a, a definitional difference, I guess, in how we view the AL Cy Young or the MVP award versus the, the Cy Young award in that you are viewing it the way it actually exists, <laughs> and I'm viewing it the way that I guess I, I wish it would exist. So basically, I just have a bias against pitchers winning the MVP award. I know that they are technically eligible for it. They win it once in a while. If this were real voting and I were a real voter for this award, I suppose I would vote for Bieber just because I'd feel bound by it. But in our made-up Because you don't awards, want to show up on Fire Joe Morgan tomorrow. Because <laughs> this, this is the level of take that you're delivering right now. I just feel like in the interest of fairness, pitchers have their own award with this great tradition and legacy that is equal to the MVP award, I think, in standing or or very close to it. We discuss this. We value it the same way we value the MVP award. I just feel like hitters should have their own award and we should just split them up. The jobs are just totally different. It's hard to compare pitchers to hitters. I feel like we should just compare hitters to hitters and pitchers to pitchers. And that's what I tend to do when I think of these awards. And so I know that hitters have like, you know, silver sluggers. There are some hitting only dedicated awards, but no one cares about those awards as much as we care about MVP and Cy Young. And so I want to keep them separated let them each have their day in the sun, give Bieber the Cy Young, and give someone else the MVP. Maybe that doesn't make sense. I don't know, but I'm sticking to it. I think I tend to favor hitters, but you know, if there's a tie break, I'll, I'll give it to the hitter for MVP. But in a case where there is not a particular standout head and shoulders above the field, I will put a pitcher in my number one spot, which happened with Clayton Kershaw in 2014, Justin Verlander uh, in, I think, 2011. And I think the AL MVP race was the most difficult for me to choose. I put Nelson Cruz second, and he's a DH. And that's really strange. I know I said I wasn't looking at defensive data yet, but Nelson Cruz doesn't have defensive data because he is a DH, and it's really hard to overcome the positional imbalance there. But I think if you look at, for instance, the top of the war leaderboard, it's a lot of guys who either don't have as much of a track record or have kind of fluky peripheral statistics right now. 
And even if you look at the best teams in the American League, like Oakland, I know Matt Chapman is in the others receiving votes category, but most of their stars are not performing as well as you need to to win an MVP. And I think that's where the AL MVP race is just so strange that the fact that Bieber has just the best statistics and most impact on his team and his team is good, I think pushed him above uh, the rest for me. Yeah, I I agree entirely in that I think it takes a special pitcher season to win something like the ones you mentioned. Uh, and there's you know, a couple years ago, I would have when Yelich won in 2018, I would have voted for Jacob deGrom because I thought that was that kind of special season and Bieber's having that. And there's not really a position player who really stands out for me. And like you said, the, the ace are the A's are the bet, you know, uh, playing like the best team in baseball while their stars are sort of underperforming, which is kind of the point of the Oakland A's, like the Oakland player <laughs> that I was trying to, to see if I could finagle an argument about uh, was Liam Hendricks on a win probability basis, but you know, inspired in fact by Ben's passionate argument for Zach Britton is AL MVP in 2016. <laughs> but I guess some people don't believe in logical consistency. <laughs> no, no, that was uh, sort of a bit. But I want to ask you both said that it takes a really special pitcher season to win the MVP award, right? Is that because of my way of thinking about this, that pitchers have their own award already? So if you're going to have someone hog both awards, it better be great. Or is it just because you think that on average or or the typical great position player is just more valuable than the typical pitcher? Are you trying to backdoor us into agreeing with you? Yes. <laughs> I think it's more the former because, you know, as you said, an MVP and a Cy Young Award are markers for history. They're markers of the legacy of the season. And that's why I think Mike's right. That narrative should matter somewhat. It's why I think I kind of view things as certain tiebreakers. Like if a, a batter and a pitcher are close for MVP, I will give it to the batter because the pitcher will probably have his own award anyway. Even team record. I mean, I might get you know kicked out. I might lose my baseball prospectus membership for saying this, but I did not put Anthony Rendon in my top three, even though you had him number one, Ben, because I, I just want to punish the Angels. They're the worst team in the American <laughs> League right now. And I think in a tiebreaker scenario where I had I was weighing him against Brandon Lau for the last spot on my ballot, and I think they've had pretty equal statistics this year. And the fact that Tampa is winning their division and the Angels are the worst team in the league matters in a tiebreaker scenario. So I think, you know, Mike Trout is the guy who we would normally just place at number one and forget about it. He's having the worst uh, hitting season of his career right now, even though he's had a lot of home runs. So I just think it, it leaves kind of a wide open field at the top. Yeah, this whole ballot smacks of the absence, not only of Trout, but the absence of bets, he says, as he overturns the table and turns the fourth of MVP into the fourth of shit. Uh, but yeah, it, it's the combination of Bieber being special and they're not really being a standout position player here for me. Well, I think you're all slighting Anthony Rendon, my number one pick for this award. And I think Rendon always gets slighted a little bit, right? I know it's long past cliche to say that he is underrated, but people still say that because there is some sliver of truth to it in that he doesn't really have the flashy stats, right? He only has six homers right now. He has no steals. He doesn't tend to lead the league or the majors in any obvious statistical categories, but he's always really good in all of them. And he has a 442 on base percentage right now. 
And that's really valuable. And we know that he is that kind of player. This isn't just some small sample fluke. He is doing this year in and year out. And so he was sort of supposed to be Mike Trout's sidekick. And instead, he has kind of become the best player on that team, at least for the first half of the season, with Trout's numbers a little bit down and his defensive stats not really up to snuff, up to snuff. Rendon kind of has the Mike Trout stats right now. I mean, he has a, a very Mike Trout-esque stat line, maybe with a, a little less power, but he has totally delivered and he's good on defense and he does pretty much everything that you would want an MVP to do. So for me, I think it's uh, sort of slighting Rendon to say, uh, well, there's no great candidate here. And so we'll give it to Bieber. Can I ask one question that I could not imagine posing to any other group of people maybe on the planet? How many of you put David Fletcher in your top three? Not me. It wasn't even me. It was Bobby. And I can't believe I'm not the biggest David Fletcher fan on That's, this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no that respect for David Fletcher. I think there's quite a bit of respect for David Fletcher in, in this conversation. Oh, I'm yeah. frankly shocked that it was only one of you. All right, let's move on to AL Cy Young. This is going to be, it's going to be pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. Um, I wanted Lance Lynn really bad for this, and I couldn't do it uh, because Bieber's having the kind of season where Lynn gives up two runs in a start and ends up blowing up his numbers. And that's like that's how good both of them have been. Uh, so I'm waiting like uh, like a cat at dinner time for Shane Bieber to give up four runs in a start and Lance to to edge back ahead. But I just couldn't do it at this point. So Shane Bieber, uh, among all four of us, was the unanimous number one here. Lance Lynn, Mike, was in second place. and then As he third, should be. Yeah, for third place, we had a tie between Zach Granke, Kenta Maeda, and Dylan Bundy. And Lucas Giolito was in the others receiving votes category. Fresh off his no-hitter. Yeah, the thing about you and Lance Lynn, Mike, is that you loved him and believed that he was the best pitcher in baseball before he actually was, and now he kind of is, or he's quite close to it, and so we're all on the Lance Lynn bandwagon. So you beat us to him. Maybe you were a little too early. I don't know. Maybe you just had I wasn't foresight. saying that he was the best pitcher in baseball until it became close enough to be plausible. I was saying I he was underrated. I don't think he's underrated anymore. I don't know. We'll have to check the, the Slack transcript. I was definitely exactly. saying he was better than James Paxton, which has always been yes. true and is truer than ever now. Yeah, that's been borne out pretty well. So To the point where I feel bad about it because I actually do like James Paxton. He seems like a nice guy and I don't want to <laughs> dump on him, but just because he stood between me and and. Lance Lynn's world domination. <laughs> yeah. So even though Zach and I and, and you, we have this running bit where you love Lynn and, and we like Lynn a little less, even we can't dispute that he deserves the second spot here. And I went with Giolito. I almost went with Granky and uh, switched to Giolito at the last second. Maybe it's recency bias because of the no-hitter, but he's also thrown more innings and just has had more impressive peripherals overall. Granky is getting it done without a lot of strikeouts, which is fun and refreshing, and uh, also fun and refreshing to see him calling his own pitches from the mound on occasion. But Giolito, I think, has the, the best combination of peripherals and work just to earn that third spot for me. I think Kenta Maeda has a real chance to finish near the top of this ward, if not overtaking Bieber. But I put Maeda second on that ballot, and I know he's benefited a bit from some luck. Like he has a very low opponent's batting average on balls and play allowed. But he, I mean, he almost threw a no hitter of his own, and he hasn't had a bad start this year. And as Mike 
was alluding to, this season is so young and it's so short that one bad start completely blows up your statistics. Giolito is a perfect example of that. He allowed, I think, seven runs in his first start of the year. So his ERA is still above three now midway through the season. And Bieber and Granky and Maeda and Lynn all have ERAs in the ones or low twos. So I think while ERA is not the be-all, end-all, I think that's kind of the first statistic a lot of voters will go to when they're judging pitchers at this point. Uh, and I think that matters. I also think we could have pitchers who don't lose a game this year, and I wonder how much that could affect the voting. I know that win-loss record doesn't matter much anymore, but Bieber and Maeda have not lost the game yet this year. Max Fried in the National League, who we'll talk about, Lance Lynn hasn't lost the game this year. So I wonder if at the end of the season, someone has like an 11-0 record, if that could sway some voters past where they normally would go. Yeah, I think something you can go, I'm I'm willing, or I'll put it this way, I'll, I'm willing to be persuaded by traditional stats in a season this short. I think that you really have to go hard on the on the descriptive end of of analysis in a 60 game season but to your point about one bad game could screw it all up i think we're at a point where one good game might be enough to get you into the the scion conversation if you've been pretty good the rest of the season i think you look at the most impressive games of the season giolito's no hitter my eight is near no hitter i was gonna say bieber's 14 strikeout game uh the first weekend but i'm i just pulled up his game logs and he has seven starts and in four of them he has struck out double digit batters and not allowed a run so maybe the other the other four most impressive starts of the season are Bieber and that's why he is where he is but uh yeah I I, I think uh I don't know I I think it's clearly Bieber Bieber one Lynn two and after that I voted for Dylan Bundy who's had a great season I can't really get that worked up beyond that it also seems like Giolito's in a spot with the White Sox who are on a nice run right now where they're neck and neck with Minnesota and Cleveland. And I don't know if voters tend to weigh playoff odds and, and playoff impact as much with the Cy Young as they do with the MVP just because of the word valuable being in MVP and people interpreting that in all the ways that they interpret that. Whereas I think they're maybe more willing to say, well, Cy Young is just the best pitcher, period. But if there is any effect for just to, you know, where you are in the standings, I guess you could say the same of Maeda for that matter, if uh, it's between them. But that might be a, a difference between, say, Gilito and Bundy, who uh, is not going to be fighting for a playoff spot from all so appearances. I don't, I don't think they weigh it consciously, but I definitely think that it matters. Like being the, in the playoff hunt matters because of exposure, because you're at the front of people's mind. I would argue that that, uh, that novelty factor of putting a new team into the playoffs swung both Cy Young races in 20, uh, 2015, where Jake Arrieta beat Granke and Kershaw, uh, and Dallas Keuchel edged out David Price, who was almost as good that year, because both of them pitched well down the stretch for teams that were getting back to the playoffs for the first time. And it was a, a huge story, and so they would have been paid attention to more. So if we're done with AL Cy Young, let's move to NL Cy Young, which I think will be just as uh, uh, uncontentious. Zach, what are the the results here first place also a unanimous number one and i was surprised by this because i spent a lot of time thinking about who i was going to put number one here uh is you darvish uh number two is max freed of atlanta number three trevor bauer from the reds and others receiving votes are bauer's teammate luis castillo and jacob de i think darvish and i'm writing uh, about darvish for tomorrow it's it's really 
cool to see him back at the top of his game like this. I think I would describe the way he's pitching as like if Granky still threw hard almost like that level of embeddedness and um, attacking hitters in different ways. There's not really a pitcher like him when he's at the top of his game. And I think he's at the top of his game now for the first time since 2013. Yeah, and he was so great in the second half last season too. So this is not coming out of nowhere. It's kind of a continuation of that turnaround. And he has such an unbelievable strikeout to walk ratio and control. He just had an unbelievable run in that respect last season. And he's pretty much followed it up this year too. So I just hope he stays healthy this time and that we don't have him sort of go back into that netherworld that he was in for a while where we knew he was talented, but weren't really sure which Darvish would show up. This has been as impressive as advertised when he first came over. Like, finally feels like he's back to what we thought he was or hoped he would be when he first came to Texas in 2012, 2013. And in fact, I think Dan Simborski wrote at Fangrass this week that his projections for Darvish have now returned to where they were when he first debuted in the big league. So he's kind of come full circle and he's been really impressive and very few pitchers are as fun to watch just because of the vast unparalleled array, array of pitches that he can command. This was the toughest uh, award for me to choose between. I had, uh, I think, Darvish, Freed, and Bauer in that order on my ballot. But then you have Castillo, you have Sonny Gray, you have Woodruff, you have DeGrom, you have Denelson Lamette, who's having an incredible season, Aaron Nola. All these pitchers are having seasons that could theoretically win a Cy Young in a different year. And part of that, of course, is the small sample. It's easier to post incredible numbers over half a dozen starts than 30. But I think given the continued rising strikeout rate and just kind of the top heaviness of pitchers at this point, uh, there are just pitchers where, you know, Nelson Lamette, for instance, has a 1.89 ERA. He has underlying numbers that kind of support an ERA that low, and I didn't even put him on my ballot. I think you could put all three Reds pitchers on your ballot and feel frankly okay with that, given how well they're pitching. It's just a, a wealth of talent at the top of the, the National League leaderboard right now. I think Bauer was the toughest case for me. He leads the National League in strikeout rate. He has a 1.65 ERA, but he also has been fairly lucky with his peripherals. He has a very low BABIP allowed. He has the highest strand rate, and I think those numbers will regress. I also didn't really know how to handle his, uh, his rising spin rate because I think it's, even though there's no smoking gun, it's fairly clear that he's doing something to increase his spin rate to the most in the majors and I wasn't quite sure how to weigh that uh when making my selection I I bumped him below freed but I think you could very easily switch those two yeah maybe we'd be viewing this differently if uh, a player who has been outspoken about other teams cheating uh hadn't performed an experiment to to rapidly increase his own spin rate in order to potentially expose other pitchers you know that's you know, it's it's a really unfortunate uh, situation that, that Bowers <laughs> seems to have walked into through no fault of his own. Um, yeah, I I do want to. I wanted to find a place for Lamette on my ballot. I couldn't. I think Nola is one of those guys who had the one bad start, and uh, it's sort of skewed the rest of his numbers. I do want to mention mention Max Freed because he's very. It's very, very quiet with him right now. Like it was a very quiet 17 win season for him last year. And right now he's four and with a 132 ERA and six starts. And you look at the peripherals and they're they're good. They're not 
I don't know if if uh, you can win a Siong without striking out a batter per inning uh, at this point, which he's close to, but not quite all the way up to. Uh, but with that, I mean that record, that ERA uh, at this point in the season, you have to put you have to find a way to put him on the ballot somewhere. Yeah, I put him second too, and and I sort of struggled with Freed as well for the peripherals reason. It almost reminds me of another Atlanta pitcher, Mike Soroka, last season, who I think finished sixth in NL Cy Young voting, even though he had great run prevention just because he didn't seem to have the strikeouts that a lot of the pitchers ahead of him had. And that kind of comes down to a philosophical question about how you think you should award the MVP, the Cy Young, right? Is it talent or is it performance or how do you blend those things? So some people will just say, well, look at the run prevention. Did he prevent runs? Then that was very valuable. I kind of think, though, that how you prevented the runs really matters because that's a question of, well, did you prevent the runs or did your defense help you prevent the runs? How much of it is attributable to you personally? And if you're striking everyone out, then you're getting those outs yourself. You're solely responsible for those outs, roughly. And to me, that makes a difference. So I bumped Freed down a bit, but still kept him at second. And I went with Castillo over Bauer for some of the reasons you mentioned. The good luck that Bauer has had with his sub-200 Babbitt has really been the opposite for Castillo. He's had a 400 Babbitt thus far, and yet he still has really impressive numbers. And I don't know what to make of the Bauer spin rate thing either. I wrote about that before the season started because his spin rate spiked very suspiciously last September. And on the one hand, you'd think, well, it it seems very clear that he perhaps started using some sort of foreign substance in games in September. But can you penalize him for that when it's very likely that almost all of the other pitchers in the league are doing the same thing and maybe just aren't doing it as well or have been doing it for so long that we just aren't even able to tell what advantage they're getting from it. So I don't know whether to penalize him for that, but I didn't have to make up my mind because I felt Castillo was more deserving regardless. Yeah, I think Darvish is clearly out front. Uh, I don't know. I'm sort of waiting for the next guy to come up and make a run at him in the second half. And I don't know if it's going to be one of the players we mentioned or somebody completely off the radar, but... I, I think it's a clear number one. And then the rest of the field, it just depends on what you care about. I think, you know, there's any one of maybe half a dozen or more pitchers who could be justified as high as two. Uh, so let's go to another uh, unanimous de- decision NL Rookie of the Year. NL Rookie of the Year, unanimous for uh, podcast favorite Jake Cronenworth of the San Diego Padres. And then a giant gap between Cronenworth and number two, as close as some of the other award races we've been talking about. This one is the furthest apart. Uh, Number two in the voting finished as Dustin May. And then three was a tie between Logan Webb, Devin Williams, and Andres Jimenez, David Peterson, and the others receiving votes category. Yeah, this is a big, uh, big ballot for uh, the first and second team second baseman on the 2015 All-Big Ten team. The two starting second baseman in the Big Ten championship game that year, Brandon Lau and Jake Cronenworth. Uh, you know, where's Reed Roper? Where is L. Grant Davis? They would be on this ballot, too, if they had gotten called up this year. I don't know what that means, but <laughs> Me um, Jake Cronenworth, uh, I can talk about him because I've seen him play this year, and he's been really good. He was kind of an afterthought in the trade that brought him to San Diego from Tampa this offseason. He was part of our, you know, ringer prediction game before the season. But I think Tommy Pham was the centerpiece of that deal. Uh, Hunter Renfro was important. Xavier Edwards, who 
got a, a shout out from Blake Snell on Twitch. It <laughs> uh, was an important part of that deal. And Trunnenworth was kind of a throw in. He had some two way buzz, uh, but he was old. He's 26 years old in his rookie season, and he has an OPS above a thousand right now. Uh, I think he is the kind of player who would probably be able to play every day as a utility man anyway. He's played every single infield spot this season already, and that's important on a team without much depth beyond its stars. And I think the the hitting is what's surprising to me because he, as a prospect, didn't seem to have much power, but he's slugging 600 this year. And I think Gavin Lux could be at the top of this leaderboard if the Dodgers had called him up, but he spent the entire season at the alternate site. So the award was wide open and Cronenworth has grabbed it with both hands. Yeah, Cronenworth has always had, even dating back to his college days, has had good line drive power. Yeah, I... But it was always sort of doubles, gap-to-gap style power. It, it, as a hitter, he was actually not unlike another Midwestern college second baseman from from around that time, Kevin Biggio, where he was hitting the ball hard, but it, he didn't hit it in the air that much. And so I'm definitely surprised that he's slugging 600 in the, the big leagues, although you can go back to conversation Ben and I had with Eric Longenhagen on the pod like two years ago. I've been back on, or I've been on Cronenworth since the beginning. So I'm very happy to see him uh, at the top of the NL rookie leaderboards. Yeah, it was kind of a tough call for what to do after Cronenworth. This is not really the strongest or most exciting rookie field beyond him. I think we're about to talk about the AL field, and there are a lot of sort of sexy choices there, and I had a tough time choosing between them. Here, I was just kind of almost flipping a coin. So I went with Logan Webb second and Devin Williams third. And Williams is uh, the Brewers reliever, which I, I may have to remind some listeners of. And he has faced 47 batters this year and has struck out 25 of them. That is pretty good, I would say. He was not that impressive last year in the pen, but he's a former starter. I think he had Tommy John and converted to the bullpen and He's been really impressive and good stuff and is missing a ton of bats. So he was third for me, even though it takes a lot for me to choose a reliever, but uh, maybe not the only reliever I chose in this category, as we will soon see. Yeah, you yeah. say there's nothing sexier. I think Devin Williams' strikeout rate is plenty sexy. And <laughs> uh, there are the top two pitchers right now in strikeout rate, if you set the minimum to 10 innings, are both rookie relievers. So one of them is here. One of them will appear in the AL section, but I think it's interesting that we've seen, you know, batters just come up and hit right away as rookies become more adjusted than ever before. And now we're seeing relievers just do the same thing. Kind of not that a pitcher like James Karinchak was anonymous, but Devin Williams was fairly anonymous before this season. And now he's been one of the best relievers in baseball. Yeah. We'll get to the AL rookie of the year in a second. Uh, you know, there are a couple guys who I think could come from a little bit off the off the radar who uh, debuted a little late. I think Alec Bohm definitely with the start he's had uh, deserves to be mentioned in that conversation. Or if you're Bobby, you could just pick all the Mets. <laughs> Bobby, what are you doing? I just wasn't compelled by any of these other names on here, so I just decided to go full bit. You know, I didn't even get a chance to talk about why I went full bit on David Fletcher but I'm going to use this opportunity to talk about Andres Jimenez and infield defense flexibility, which is suddenly very important to me in 2020. It's all I care about. <laughs> Pandemic baseball, infield flexibility, it's very important, guys. All right. That's well, all I have to say gonna... about Andres Jimenez. Although David Peterson, competent major league pitcher, which uh, stands out in the Mets rotation these days. That's true. Um, so we're going to see how important infield flexibility is on the AL Rookie of the Year ballot, where we have two outfielders and a pitcher. 
are the only people who received votes. So yeah, there were there are no others receiving votes category. We all had the same three names. We all put Cleveland reliever James Karinchak third, and then we actually have a tie at the top of the ballot because Bobby and Ben had Luis Robert first, and Bauman and I had Kyle Lewis first. Uh, the battle of exciting young outfielders commences. Yeah, for me, I went with Robert again. Maybe it's partly biased because he was my preseason pick, but also I just think he is uh, the more impressive player. I mean, if you look at which is more sustainable, which is not necessarily the question that we're trying to answer here, Kyle Lewis has sort of a, a sky-high BABIP and has been impressive too and, and is obviously a really good story. But I think probably Robert is more likely to look like the the best candidate at the end of the season for whatever that's worth. And just the raw skills are so impressive. And yes, he has some plate discipline issues and some serious swing and miss issues that I have confidence that he can correct with time and experience. But the power and the speed and the defense, it's just all there. And it's all been really impressive for a team that is also exciting and winning. So for me, he was just kind of the the clear choice with uh, all due respect to Mr. Lewis. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. And I think that Robert's definitely the better player going forward. I think he could maybe challenge for MVP, even if he doesn't fix the swing and miss. He's that mm-hmm. good and contribute all over the field. I just think this is not... For me, this isn't really about uh, that about projection on that level. Like, it's not like Kyle Lewis is not a prospect. It's not like he's not impressive all over the field in his own right. Like, if this was like the Bryce Harper Wade Miley Rookie of the Year conversation, then maybe we could talk. But Lewis is right now he uh, is leading the American League in batting average and runs scored. He's leading all of Major League Baseball in. Uh, Offensive war, according to, to baseball reference, uh, seven home runs hitting 360 with a 446 OBP. I can't, I tweeted this a couple days ago and I'm still not sure what to make of it. I don't know if he's actually a good defensive center fielder or if he's just really tall and therefore robs home runs easily. <laughs> and I like, this is an actual question. I don't know if he's actually any good defensively, but if he is, then I think the Mariners have really found something. Yeah. My rookie of the year philosophy, and I know there are disagreements on this, is I think. Just the player with the best rookie season should be rewarded. And I am not particularly concerned with long-term potential. If, in retrospect, it looks weird that uh, a Hall of Famer lost out on a Rookie of the Year vote to someone who spent four seasons in the league, I'm okay with that if the guy who spent four seasons in the league had a better rookie season. Bob Hamlin beat in 1994? But, I, I mean, the Hall of Famer is going to win potential awards in the future, and I think that's more the case with Robert than Kyle Lewis, but Kyle Lewis right now, I think it's hard to look at their respective statistics and say that Lewis is having a worse season. So I gave him the the number one spot on my ballot, but I could also, as Ben said, see that switching as the season continues, if Lewis's Babbitt falls, but also if you just zoom in on like the last two weeks, Lewis's plate discipline has been fantastic and Robert has not. So I could see it remaining the same and you know good for the Mariners fans because they don't have much to celebrate this season but Lewis has been good Justice Sheffield to my surprise has been fairly good and I considered him for this ballot as well uh I also considered Randy Dobnak from the Twins who's having a great season if you look at his surface stats not so much under the surface but I think in general Lewis I mean if you just look at war he has a he has a case for MVP right now and I 
didn't go that far, but it's there. Yeah, I thought hard about Sheffield too over Karen Check, but ultimately just couldn't bring myself to do it. Karen Check, I just enjoyed his minor league stats so much last season and the fact that he has totally backed them up at the major league level has been a, a source of great entertainment for me. And he's also, you know, this is not necessarily relevant to the award, but he's a lot of fun to watch. He's just his mannerisms, his kind of herky-jerky delivery. All of that persona is really fun. He just, he's like a big strikeout monster. He just looks the part and that's really fun. So I've enjoyed him and he's uh, playing a pretty important role also in a, a bullpen and a pitching staff that needs every win at this point. So if that matters at all, he uh, gets that point in his favor too. Yeah, this is, if nothing else, this is a very cool AL rookie class Yes, uh, between these two hitters, Karen Jack, Sheffield, and, and some of the others. Uh, I looked it up. The answer to that question, who did Bob Hamlin beat for AL rookie of the year in 1994? Zach has no idea. Ben, do you want to take a guess? Gosh, I don't know, but I feel bad for Bob Hamlin because he's always the go-to example of the guy who yeah, won it's rookie of the get year worse. and didn't have a good the, career. The guy who finished second is Manny Ramirez. Uh, so, okay. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, we're going to take a quick pause and be back to, to wrap things up in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things but at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. 
All right, and we're back for everybody's favorite running gag on this show. It's the unnamed playoff odds segment. So this is the uh, part of the show where we talk about, we look at the playoff odds, how they've changed over the past week, talk about some of the more intriguing risers and fallers. And to me, I think there's only one place to start. Uh, Last week, we talked about the Arizona Diamondbacks as the exemplar of a team that could change its fortunes with one good week. And uh, Ben Lindbergh, what has happened to the Arizona Diamondbacks since we had that conversation? They did not have one good week. They had one really lousy week, and they are leading the losers in this segment. They are down 36 percentage points since we last spoke, and they have lost seven consecutive games. So that'll do it. Yeah, I'm going to... I took my slide whistle out of storage and I'm going to do a quick uh, interpretation of their playoff odds graph over the course of the season. (laughs) Thank you. Very good. Yeah, they're down to 18.8% chances to make the playoffs at all. They're uh, essentially out of any other race. They're out of the division race, and they're looking like long shots now for anything at 13 and 18. So, yeah, they kind of just kicked the bucket, basically. Talking as, about <laughs> as soon as selling Merrill them. Kelly and then scratching <laughs> Merrill Kelly from a, a start because of shoulder uh, discomfort. Just nothing really going their way. Yeah. So the the rest of the teams that were down big this week, the Reds were down 26 percentage points. The Nationals, who lost Stephen Strasburg for the season, down 17.3 percentage points. The Rangers down 13.7. And the Angels, finding new ways to get on this losers list week after week, they were down 11.4 percentage points and uh, are now in single digits. They're at uh, 5% chances to make the playoffs. And even that seems optimistic at 10 and 22. So that's maybe not surprising given their poor record, but the Nationals, defending champions, losing Strasburg, their horse, they are in some trouble now. I'm surprised the Angels had that far to fall. I know. <laughs> I think the really strange part about these standings is not just the roller coaster ride that teams like the Diamondbacks have been on, but the fact that in the National League in particular, the teams are bunched so closely together that you can see these wide swings and still dream on a, a swing back in the right direction. The trade deadline is Monday, and I wrote about this for the site today. It's unclear whether teams should want to trade players when they have such a close shot to make the playoffs. The Reds, their odds fell 26 percentage points over the last week. They currently rank 14th in the entire National League in record, and they're only two and a half games back of a playoff spot. It takes one good series, and they're back in it, and then you can dream on advancing pretty far in the playoffs with a rotation of Gray and Castillo and Bauer. So the Reds' problem is their offense, which has scored, uh, I think, 27th they rank in baseball. Uh, Over the last few games, they have been shut out and then scored two runs, two runs, and two runs, which is why they've fallen in the playoff odds, because they've just lost a bunch of games in a row without scoring any runs. But I could see a team like that. I could see a team like the Nationals having one good series and bouncing right back, whereas the AL is just a completely different story where seven teams are basically locked into a playoff spot and there's only one one berth remaining. Yeah, is anyone buying the Nationals? They're 11-16. They have about a one in four chance of making the playoffs now. They have one of the tougher strengths of schedule remaining and they don't have Strasburg. So anyone seeing a, another comeback from a, a slow start, which they pulled off last season? 
Yeah, I think it would all have to depend on. It would hinge on. Well, one, I think their pitching depth is is maybe a little bit better than I would have expected going into the season. So they've got that going for them. Soto's playing the way he is. Uh, the rest of the National League, like it's exactly what what Zach said that you need that if this was the American League where there were actually more than two or three good teams, uh, we would we could write them off completely. But I think the rest of the National League is in a state that I don't trust anybody that the Nats are chasing enough to write them off completely. But I'll tell you what, if they make the playoffs from here, you might as well parlay that with Juan Soto winning the NL MVP because mm-hmm. it's going to take something special from him. Yeah. One team that I think really is making progress in that tougher AL pennant race is the Toronto Blue Jays, who are plus 18 and a half. They were a team that I had really written off. Uh, they've lost Bo Bichette. They've lost Nate Pearson, at least for the time being. And they're seven and three in their last 10. They're back to 500. They're back to even and run differential. Uh, I really want this team. I'll, yeah, I'll just be completely honest. I really want this team to make the playoffs. I really want to watch them uh, up against the the best in the American League and see them be rewarded for some of the talent that they brought up. It's a fun team to watch. So I hope that, I don't know that they're good, but I hope that they're good. Yeah, I agree. And they're right around the closest to a coin flip of any team. Right now, they have a 56% chance to make the playoffs, according to Fangraphs. The only teams closer to 50-50, believe it or not, are the Mets and the Phillies, who have not had as good seasons as the I believe it 100%. That is Uh exactly what I would have expected. Okay. Well, the Blue Jays are at 500, and I agree with you. They are really entertaining and of course, Pearson was uh, supposed to be sort of a, a savior for that rotation, and that didn't really work out. He came up and looked impressive at times, but struggled and then got hurt. So that's uh, a loss for them. But the offense is really exciting and fun. And if they could just get more out of Lad, who <laughs> sort of keeps slipping down the rankings of exciting young Blue Jays hitters, I mean, Think of what we thought he was going to be a year ago or at the beginning of the 2019 season and look at what he has actually been. And it seems like he might have to make some changes because he still is kind of pounding the ball into the ground constantly. So if he could figure that out, that would be a a big boost to them. But I'm with you on them as an entertaining team. I'll give you the other big risers this week. So the, the top team in terms of playoff odds increase since we last spoke The San Francisco Giants riding a seven-game winning streak right now. They're up 33 percentage points. The Marlins, who we kind of counted out maybe, or it it seemed like their run at this was kind of flagging, they are up 24 percentage points since last week. The Cardinals are not only playing games, but winning some of them and improving their playoff odds by 20 percentage points or 21 since last year, last week. And the Padres are up 15% to a near lock at this point. The the Padres are about as close to a a sure thing. They're 18 and 13. Their playoff odds are up to 94%. I just want to say, I never stopped believing in the Marlins. (laughs) Uh, And the Marlins are in a weird spot because I, I don't think any NL East team is a powerhouse. The Braves are the best, but they also have, you know, Max Fried and no other good starters at the moment. So I think the Marlins are probably not going to stay in second place, but it's not like they're just going to get hammered by the rest of the teams in that division. The interesting team here to me is the Giants, the biggest riser, because right now they would be in the 1-8 matchup versus the Dodgers, and the Dodgers this year have an 18-5 and record against every other team, and they're 4-4 four and four versus the Giants. And I think maybe the most surprising on-field 
development this year for me has been the Giants offense, which is incredible. And I don't understand how Mike this Ostremski is not a, for MVP. Yeah, yeah Mike Stremsky. But even I look at these players now and I just don't understand how they have a top 10 offense and runs per game. That's not even accounting for ballpark adjustments. And they're being carried by these anonymous hitters. It's very much like out Donovan of the 20, <laughs> yeah, out of the 2012 Giants playbook when they were led by guys like Cody Ross and Andres Torres and all those uh, castoffs. And I think the Giants are one of the most fun stories in in the sport right now. Bauman has talked about how much fun they are to watch. Uh, Brandon Belt is hitting everything, so I guess he's an accomplished player, but. It's it's a weird team, but a team that is getting results. Joey Bart's up in the majors now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did not expect the Giants to be this good, and I also didn't expect them to be this fun. I think the, the Giants in the last couple of years have not only been not so good, but have kind of been anti-fun. I mean, there just hasn't been a lot to really enjoy. And other than kind of like the, the remaining world champions in their twilight years, which has been sort of depressing in some ways, but this team all of a sudden is a lot of fun to watch. And the fact that they came out of a series with the Giants up as the, the biggest risers for the week did not see that coming. Not sure if I see it continuing, but I'm uh, enjoying it while it lasts. Yeah, we'll see how they do if they can keep this up without uh, being able to beat up on the Dodgers all the time. Uh, they have to play <laughs> some teams they have a, a little harder uh, time with. All right, uh, so we're just about out of time, so I will uh, let you guys go. Thank you, Zach. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you. Thank you uh, to Luis Robert and Shane Bieber for giving us stuff to talk about, and thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like Ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.